1: And hello, friends, and welcome back once again to another episode of Now Appalachia. You're listening to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and this program continues to profile the outstanding authors with connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. If you're a new listener to our program or you just stumbled upon us for the first time, we want to give a special welcome and a hello to you, and we welcome you to the program, and we appreciate you picking us out of your podcast listening lineup options, and we certainly hope that you'll make Now Appalachian make this program part of your daily podcast menu. So we appreciate having those of you with us for the first time. If you are new to the program, we're delighted to have you. If you're a veteran and you've been with us before, welcome back. Glad to have you again uh, for another outstanding program and another outstanding all interview as we profile a collection of short stories that was recently released in August by Ohio State University Press and their imprint Mad Creek Books. This is a collection of short stories called Our Sister Who Will Not Die, a collection of stories by author Rebecca Bernard, and we're delighted to have her with us today. She is an assistant professor in the English department at Angelo State University. Her other work has appeared in Colorado Review, Southwest Review, Juked, and elsewhere. And she has also been recognized by the Best American Short Stories Anthology series. So Rebecca, welcome to Now Appalachia. So delighted to have you here to talk to us about your outstanding collection of stories. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm so glad so glad to have you here. And um, you and I had been exchanging sort of messages back and forth when you announced uh, early last year that this collection was coming out. And uh, I, I read the, the the summary that you had posted online about your book, and I thought I couldn't wait to to read it, and couldn't wait to talk to you about it. And I'm so glad uh, to have you uh, on the program to talk about it. And we, we look at these stories, and and there's just so much going on here, both on the surface. Uh, and below the surface. And you have 11 stories here, uh, 213 pages of stories uh, in the collection. Um, And when I was thinking about how to sort of encapsulate all of the stories uh, into one theme or to kind of one uh, main idea, uh, it it seems to me that uh, these stories are kind of thematically linked in in the sense uh, that uh, we see characters in all of your stories who are um, people that are doing some awful things to someone else. Um, it, it, in some cases, pretty brutal, awful things uh, to someone else. Um, and there's sort of an opportunity there for the reader to get a chance through these stories to kind of put themselves in those characters' shoes and and follow along as we see these things being done by one character to someone else for a variety of different reasons. But there's also kind of an underlying theme of hope in all of your stories too. So I wanted to ask you about that, about the collection as a whole, um, thematically as they they go from one to the other, this idea of people behaving badly, uh, why they do it, why you got interested in kind of focusing on that for these stories, but talk to us a little bit too about kind of the underlying theme of hope that kind of resonates from a lot of these stories.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a, that's, I like, it's an
1: interesting way to to hear
2: described. I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's really about, so in those kind of actions, like seeing um, one character hurting another character, I mean, my interest really lies in sort of understanding why. And so I like that you put that idea of the reader sort of being in their position, um, because I mean, for me, a lot of it was sort of about, um, really about empathy and kind of trying to figure out like, how can we find empathy for someone, even if they're doing something sort of brutal to, to someone else, right? So how can we see it as opposed to this sort of like violent action or this kind of like binary of like good and evil and like some people do bad things and they're bad, um, and trying to, uh, really complicate that and focus on sort of the gray area of, um, sort of like, a, a, I guess, like kind of our um, our culpability as people, right? So that um, this kind of idea that we, we're we all maybe capable of doing things that that aren't as great. And and so what does it mean to kind of have to sit in that space? Um, and I guess like specifically, uh, so I started writing these stories um, at the beginning of my PhD, and I had just been living in Kentucky and teaching at community colleges. And I also taught um, through the community college in, in the prison system there. Um, and I was really struck by um, my experience working with incarcerated men. And it got me just really thinking about how can I work to kind of create stories that help us see people who do bad things as not just people who do bad things, but as a sort of complex individual underneath, right? So, I mean, I think, I think maybe that sense of hope kind of comes out from, if you, I mean, if you're watching someone, you know, hit his girlfriend, which is a brutal, you know, and terrible thing, um, and it's not that I want to excuse it, but I feel like how can I also see this person as like a full human to kind of understand, right? Um, and I feel like, and because in my mind, it's like when we when we label things as like, you know, oh, this person's a criminal, um, we lose out on the ability to kind of better understand them and, And I feel like understanding is the way to change and is the way to kind of changing these sort of negative behaviors, ultimately.
1: And I feel like as writers, you know, you know, we're told to, you know, whether you're writing a short story or a novel or a screenplay, you know, we're told to not make all of your antagonists totally bad. Right. You know, we're you know, don't make them so evil and so bad just for the sake of being bad. There has to be a reason. There has to be an impetus there has to be sort of a motivation for why they're doing what they're doing. Now, it may not be something that the reader agrees with or that, you know, the the reading society, quote unquote, would agree with, mm-hmm. but there has to be motivation that drives their, their bad behavior. And, and I think you... You do that so well and work that so well in, and we'll get into some of the stories specifically in just a minute. But you you work that in so well, where where even though these people are doing really bad things, you could kind of step back and say, well, you know, I I don't really approve of that. It kind of makes me uncomfortable, but I can see where they're coming from. Is is that something that's easier said than done in terms of of drafting that? And as you're putting these characters in these kinds of stories, you know, we like said so we hear that and we're told to do that as writers, but it, it seems like in your stories that, that there had to be some some difficult moments there, I would think to, to, to make them, to make them really bad and do really bad things, but also, you know, imbue them with a little bit of, 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 um, I don't want to say honesty, but something where a reader could say, well, you know what, I, I could see why they are the way they are. Was that difficult to do as a writer when you were putting those stories together?
2: Yeah. Well, I think, um, especially like, I would say kind of when I was writing stories midway through the collection, like in the family and, and first date, um, what I would think about, I would be like, okay, I want a character who's done this and I want to understand why someone would do this, right? So I think really like my kind of strategy was to kind of walk through like, how could this happen to someone? Like how could someone find themselves in a position where they're, you know, hurting their son in this way, right? Um, And so I think it was kind of coming from this place of wanting to understand. And so then, sort of thinking through well like how could I make this believable right how could I um kind of work my way through it and so I, I guess like that was my sort of process was just to try and to put myself in this person's shoes and and think how they might think and, and what kinds of things would happen um and then I mean I guess for me it's like <laughs> what's funny is like I they're so close to me and I like love all my characters I'm definitely of the persuasion that I like love my characters like you know I really care about them like people so I don't it's I don't even really think they're that bad I know that they are and I should distance myself from that statement but it's like it's hard I I feel like I come at them from this place of love so maybe that also just kind of comes through um yeah and I also think that it's interesting especially like that first story in the collection when I hear people's reactions they're like it's i don't think i even have an ability to really see it objectively um but yeah i mean i guess like i would say my my kind of the things that i struggled with um were i mean i'm i'm terrible at like plot is not my my favorite thing so it was more like craft type things i think that became like the things i was really working on but yeah
1: so you say, so you went into each story with with a general sense of what was going to happen You just had to to kind of use that story arc structure to to kind of grab the reader from the beginning and hold them all the way through.
2: Yeah, just to kind of think through. Like, I mean, in like in the opening story, I remember thinking the grief has to be palatable, right? You have to understand the grief, and then and then the sort of scenes that sort of. I mean, I guess not to like give it away, but like the sort of escalating scenes, like just thinking about how can I how can I show this almost like slippery slope, so to speak? Yeah. Um, but in most of them, yeah, it was it was really about, um, I guess, yeah, just sort of thinking through, thinking ahead of time, like, okay, if this is the sort of thing I want to show, how can I show it? In terms of like that bad behavior that you talked about.
1: Yeah, very good. So you mentioned that first story. Uh, there were three stories in your collection that I really loved. And so I wanted to, to focus on them. Uh, we can talk certainly about some others as well. But uh, the first two just grabbed me from the very beginning and did not let me go. And the first one we talked about, we've kind of referred to called In the Family. Uh, in this particular story, we're following a character named Maxine who has lost her husband, uh, but she has one surviving son. Um, they have a very um, interesting relationship, uh, to put it mildly. That might be the best way to say that without giving too much away. But then tragedy strikes, and something happens to the son. And what I loved uh, about that story is the reactions were so different from people in Maxine's life. You, you had the neighbor that kind of came over to check on her, but we also get a sense of kind of what people in the in the neighborhood slash community. Think about Maxine and and her situation. Can you talk to us a little bit of, of, about her character, kind of the relationship she has with with her son, um, and, and this idea that uh, you know whatever reason or justification Maxine was using for doing what she what she did and had the relationship with her son, she still is kind of treated like an outcast. Can you talk a little bit about that story?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um,
2: and I mean, I guess that's another thing. So like the fact that she has this sort of double grief, right? I think that's also kind of an important balance, right? I think like if her son, I guess this is a lot of spoilers, but we, he's hes dead from the beginning, right? So um, I think if she didn't, it's almost like, I feel like to get our ability to kind of feel for her, theres it's like there needs to be some sort of, not like sacrifice, but I think there needs to be like, I mean, like in the second story that he's, I think if that's the second story that he served time. Um, Right. So like there is some sort of like balance. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, I think that was another, I guess like the sort of community and their sort of um, judgment. Right. To me, it almost feels like, and I'm not sure, I can't actually say how this is a story that I don't, I don't, I don't remember thinking about this intentionally. I think it just kind of came out as I was writing it, but this idea that, um not everything is completely revealed right there's like some reveal but and and so it's almost as if the reader is alongside the sort of judgmental neighbors right so you're kind of like also in their position in a way right um as far as like how much can we understand someone else's situation and someone else's grief and um and I think that that kind of line becomes interesting in terms of because I think it's I think we're as human beings, we're so quick to cast judgment. I mean, it's just sort of natural, right? Um, but to like force us to kind of think about that judgment and think about, um, I don't know, the uneasiness of of understanding why someone would do something that we don't want them to do. I guess I don't know if that quite answers, but.
1: No, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And, and I like how how Maxine kind of in, in, imbues and embodies what what you were just saying there, because uh, there are times when she's thinking about what has happened to her son, and and she she is she is grief stricken. Um, then there's moments where she kind of doesn't seem to understand why people in the community um, have this animosity towards her. But then there's other moments where she kind of is like, yeah, I can see why <laughs> you know they have yeah. uh, this attitude towards me. So, so she's kind of going along with those same emotions i think that, that the reader is having kind of being on the other side and being in that judgmental neighborhood group you know you know we're 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 seeing kind of how she's reacting to all of that and she's reacting i think in a very human way uh as she goes through grief you know sometimes it's okay sometimes it's not sometimes she's angry sometimes she's resigned herself to what's happened so, mm-hmm. so she's very human in that regard too i think
2: yeah and i think also um the unitarian minister i guess and partly too i was thinking about her as sort of like a sexual object right because in some ways it's like he like i mean i remember specifically making her like very attractive right which i mean i think most of the time in our fiction we don't make our i mean you know you're you're told not to but here i felt like her beauty is sort of this you know curse and will ultimately kind of curse in her life right potentially right i mean it gets kind of hairy but um thinking about it that way too right like because there is this sort of i mean i remember especially maybe even like in workshop the sense of like maybe that she was like not apologetic enough or not that she was like maybe a little too defiant because there is a little bit of her that you know sort of holds on to what she did you know I, i mean she's not perfect right she's not just like sorry yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, she's she's all these different things. Right. I guess.
1: Yeah. yeah. She has a few moments where she's you could almost imagine her with her hands on her hips being like, you know, well, this is my family, and my life, you know, butt out. <laughs> you know? Right. And she, she has these moments of defiance, <laughs> quiet defiance, which, yeah. which is fantastic. It, it's just a wonderful story. And I thought it was a great, mm-hmm. a great, great introduction into the series of stories. And the second story I loved, too, was called First Date. Uh, and in this and in this case, we, we have a character named Jamie who has been incarcerated for a while. Um, he has now been re- released from prison and he's trying to, uh, you know, get back, you know, some of his um, just get back into life and get back into living again. And he decides to start dating uh, and he decides to start dating him. And, and I love the relationship that, that 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 he develops with the woman in that particular story. And I love how both of them are kind of holding things back. They had this great conversation. I think it's at a coffee shop. Um, and, and you can tell as the reader both of them are are telling each other things but they're holding back at the same time and it's almost kind of like who's going to blink first and really spill the beans of who they really are and I love the tension that's there and it's a quiet tension but but you're really just kind of like thinking okay who's going to make the the big reveal when's it going to happen uh, talk to us about putting that story together what, what got you interested in that in these two characters and kind of this this little tap dance they're doing around each other because she's got some secrets in her life. He certainly got some secrets about being incarcerated. What's going on there? Tell us a little bit about that story.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, again, so it was sort of thinking through, um, you know, if you had served this crime, I mean, if you had served this lengthy sentence and in this case, you know, he, he killed his father when he was like a teenager. um, And then you're back out in the world. Like, how do you, how do you manage that, right? Like in in dating, it's like, I mean, how do you start dating if you have this sort of um kind of really violent act in your past, right? How do you let someone get to know you? I mean, I think that that in itself is like kind of a tricky thing. Um, and then with her character, again, it's like because because ultimately, I also feel like he is a really nice guy, right? So he's a nice guy who did this sort of thing, right? Which, um I mean, I guess maybe that's one of the arguments of the story. In my mind, at least, that especially those sorts of crimes of passion, right? They are. You don't really have to be particularly special to to have to do something like that. Obviously, I mean, maybe that's not okay. Anyways, um, my feelings about the criminal justice system, et cetera. But um, yeah, but like with her character, I mean, that I think I think it kind of maybe plays on that idea how in dating we are all hiding something, right? So she has. Like a lot of baggage like teenage sons right all of this stuff kind of happening so in some ways it's like in her mind they're coming at it almost like from the same sort of playing field and then it's just that we as readers know that he has this like much graver thing right so so maybe it ultimately it kind of makes this question like what are the what are the things that we should um feel like we I mean yeah, that, that's tough, I'm sorry. Uh, thinking about um like the, there's not there's not really an equanimity in what they're hiding, I guess I guess I would say, but yeah. maybe it calls into question that idea what we do hide
1: absolutely. in the version
2: of ourselves we want to present.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. yeah because she she is kind of ashamed of having these two teenage sons that you know are kind of uh, unwieldy those mm-hmm. <laughs> teenage sons often are. she she's ashamed by that. He's ashamed by his incarceration, obviously, but you're right. They're mm-hmm. not equal. Um, and, and so as a result, um, they almost kind of talk past each other. Uh, yeah. and, and I want to ask you about the dialogue that's, that's midway through that story, because it's just so wonderful. And uh, like I said, there's just so much tension and so much going on, both being said and unsaid. W- when you were writing that, um, did w- was that, was that a fun section to write, a difficult section to write? Uh, did you maybe write all of Jamie's dialogue first separately and then all of hers separately and see how it would come together? H- how did you put that together? Because I thought those were the best three pages of the story, because like I said, I kept waiting for someone to make the big slip up and, and I loved how they were saying a lot, but not saying very much to each other. Mm-hmm. It was just fantastic. And I just wondered about that process. Was that difficult to kind of construct it to where you have the tension, but it's also trying to move the story forward a little bit. Yeah.
2: So, um, I mean, as a writer, like, I'm pretty much like a draft, like I just sort of revise as I draft, I guess I would say. Right. So, um, so with that scene, no, I mean, I think I pretty much wrote it just sort of straight out. Um, I mean, most of that, I think that whole story, I really kind of wrote it straight out. And then I'm trying to think in revision, it was really just sort of like tightening down things Um, and then figuring out that kind of how much to reveal at the end and if there was enough, revealed at the end Um, but yeah I think like I mean I guess like with a lot of dialogue um, I don't my background was in film which I don't know if that has any effect on it but like I went to film school that was like what I originally was going to do with my life Um, so I mean I, I, I love writing I mean those scenes especially first date scenes or awkward kind of romantic scenes I think are like really fun to think about and then also like in especially in Doreen or like the older the woman's character, right? Kind of thinking about like um women in my life or like I mean, I kind of imagined I just imagined her as like my mom or or a kind of a figure like that and like what it would be like um, kind of being on the state and and, and kind of going back to what you're saying before, it's like there's this unlevelness between them. And it's almost because of that, like, she's allowed to kind of, she ends up sort of spewing out everything, right? Versus while he kind of then gets to play the sort of empath, like empathetic person to her kind of situation, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like with dialogue, it's, uh, I mean, of course, I read aloud all my dialogue. I think I think probably all of us do that, though. Kind of like here, if it actually is, does it sound like actual human beings kind of thing? right and there's like a guacamole joke I feel like at one point which,
1: yeah, <laughs> which, I, which yeah. I,
2: thought, I I remember thinking that was awkward and then I remember in workshop people liked it and I was like okay
1: yes it's it's like the world's worst icebreaker on a date kind of the guacamole joke <laughs> yeah and I was like I was like oh is this how
2: people yeah
1: That's but we've right. all been on awkward dates right so oh absolutely yeah. yes absolutely <laughs> We're, we're speaking with author Rebecca Bernard here on this episode of Now Appalachia, her new collection of short stories, which just came out in August of 2022. It's called Our Sister Who Will Not Die. We'll come back to the stories uh, in just a second. But Rebecca, you, you said something earlier I want to ask you more about. You said that you had experience teaching in a prison in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that experience. How did you get that job? Did you actively seek that job? And, and what was that experience like working with those inmates at the prison?
2: Yeah. So um, even during my MFA and after I, so I did my MFA in Tennessee and then um, I had done a lot of like uh, worked for a nonprofit um, that sort of worked to seek out on um, finding marginalized, giving t- the oral histories of marginalized populations in middle Tennessee. Um, so then when I was adjuncting in Kentucky, um, I was living in Louisville and I was teaching at like a school in Indiana and a school in, um, uh, in in, in Louisville area and they just sent an email to all the adjuncts being like hey we need someone to teach these composition courses at um the Kentucky State Reformatory in LaGrange and I just was like of course because I don't know I'd I'd always wanted um I guess I'd I'd already kind of like felt you know had these sort of feelings about the criminal justice system and sort of the inequities in it um and I'd been doing that community work and I, I knew that I feel like For me like teaching in an academy is cool but it's also really nice to have teaching outside like to experience something outside of it so yeah so i volunteered i mean it wasn't a volunteer position but i said yes um and so i taught for the year before i ended up moving to texas for the phd so i taught um composition one and composition two and then in my second semester there i also taught a creative writing class um during the same time as competition too so it was like the men would just be like kind of separated and i would have to like bounce back and forth because you know they just don't i mean there aren't great resources and time and stuff but um yeah i mean i don't know it was the it was just really like everyone i mean the men were like so smart and it was just a really um i don't know i i, I it was just a great experience and so then since then i've continued to find opportunities to like trying to teach creative writing in incarcerated communities because I think
1: it's valuable. I think everyone deserves the right to it's kind of expression and writing. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I, I've, I have a couple of friends of mine uh, that live in different parts of the country who've done exactly the same thing that you've done and have taught creative writing or, um, uh, you know, poetry or songwriting workshops mm-hmm. with incarcerated uh, individuals. And they say the same things that you do. They said it was a life-changing experience and they love doing it it's their favorite group of people to work with and uh they say that for many of the, the same reasons that you do that everybody has an opportunity and they're so impressed by how serious and sincere uh the the inmates are uh i have a, I have a good friend that works in a women's prison and works all with all he's a male and works with all women inmates but how sincere and serious they are and and the quality of work that gets produced that you wouldn't think would come from that population Um, But by the end of the course or the end of the six weeks or whatever it is, um, you know, they have said some of the work that they have have read and listened to is better than some of the graduate students they've taught at a university. So I'm really glad that you that that you mentioned that. I'm glad to hear you had the same same good experience there uh, with that population. So I want to ask you about Mad Creek Books. It's an imprint Mm -hmm. of the Ohio State University Press in Columbus. How did you get hooked up with them? How did you uh, get connected uh, with your manuscript to them? And what was the experience like working with a university press, which I know is a little different from a traditional press and it's a little different from a small press and it's a little different from a micro press. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. How did you guys meet up and what was the experience like working with the university press?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I, the journal, which is the I mean, it's called The Journal, but it's the Literary Journal for Ohio State University, um, run by their MFA students and maybe some faculty. Um, they have an annual contest, which is called the non slash fiction prize. So it's for prose manuscripts of either their collections of essays or short stories. Um, and so basically, you know, I was, this would have been in my like fourth or fifth year, of the, the fifth year in my PhD. Um, you know, initially I I mean the, the honest story is that initially I was gonna like wait for that two book deal. And then when I I kinda just was like, you know what, short stories, they're not precious, you can always write more. Um so I started submitting to the contests. Um, and Nick White was the judge and somehow magically I mean, it does feel like magic because I feel like the more I just feel like writing is such a strangely subjective thing and what one person likes, you know, I just feel like, yeah, so um I ended up winning the contest um and so contest comes with publication through Bad creek books um and they've been super awesome you know um i think i i mean obviously it's my first publishing experience so i don't have anything to compare it to but i feel like um everything was like really professional you know they the whole copy i mean everyone i've worked with at the press has been super nice um i mean i think the main difference is between you know, if you are with a big press and you have, like, a team of, a publicity team to, like, that, that to me seems like maybe the main sort of difference, you know, um, but otherwise, uh, I mean, they've been, like, super helpful. I mean, you know, um, I've had a great experience, yeah, and I think the books they put out are beautiful, right? Yeah. Especially, like, the twenty—the 21st century essay collection. Yeah, really cool.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that. I feel the same way. I feel like that, any book I've ever read from their press has just been phenomenal, both in the the design and the look and feel of the book, but also in the content, most importantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do such good work. And I know sometimes there's a there's a tiered system in university presses and, and, and certainly uh, others get more uh, attention for a variety of reasons than others. But um, if folks are really want to read some good books from university press, uh, Ohio State University Press is really cranking out. I think them and probably WVU Press in Morgantown here recently are just really churning out some great stuff. Uh, And I would encourage folks to check out more titles, certainly uh, from the Ohio State University Press. And we're speaking with one of their authors today. Her name is Rebecca Bernard. The title of her collection of stories is called Our Sister Who Will Not Die. And Rebecca, I wanted to ask you uh, about one more story before we run out of time, because I think it speaks so much to uh, a common experience that we're all dealing with. And this is um, the next to last story in the collection. It's called, We Have Disappeared. Um, and this is about two boys, Sammy and Mac. Uh, it's it's basically a story about one friend enabling the drug use of another friend. And I feel like there are so many of us today who have been touched in some way, uh, negatively in most cases by, by drug abuse. We know of someone, we have uh, friends who have someone in their family, who's been affected by by drug abuse. And we see the statistics and the stories about uh, overdoses. And certainly Appalachia has been probably the hardest hit um, Mm -hmm. area of the country in terms of drug use and overdose deaths and all of that. So I really felt like that that was a story that had sort of a a, a universal appeal for everybody because everybody knows someone or has been touched uh, directly or indirectly by that. But um, what is the reason for the enabling? Uh, why is it allowed to continue and really what's going on? I mean, what kind of friendship do these two boys really have?
2: Mm. Well, I guess, I guess when I think about it, it's like a love story in my mind. Um, and it's very much about Mac loving his friend. And I mean, I guess, and this is where the sort of darkness comes in, right? It's because he realizes the way to sort of get, to his friend and to have this intimacy with his friend is to let to kind of let his addiction kind of grow right and and I think so I think it. I think in large part I mean in my thinking it was it was that right it was um his desire kind of overwhelming his what's right right um and then obviously he like goes off and becomes a counselor and 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 ideally changes his ways but i think it's i think it's also um that mac is really sort of closeted at this point in his life right so and and then also there's the threat of his his sister right and this kind of idea of right i mean this is something i'm really interested in in some ways like that the reality of drugs is so brutal and you know but then we also have these sort of um depictions like that whole idea of like heroin chic and like the sort of tortured artist like cobain and like all these people who you know experience some sort of like i don't i was going to say nirvana but like some i mean that there is this kind of i don't know so i think in some ways he's also like it i don't know it's like it, it allows
1: him to like help someone even if it's dark and not right and yeah and, and there was an element too i felt like that you know, he he loved him so much that he was not to turn a blind eye to this, but he knew that the drugs made him happy. And so, you know, you mm-hmm. want to be if you love someone, you want to be someone who helps make that person happy. and And I've heard. And I've talked to people over the last you know five or ten years that have said that, you know, when when they're asked, well, why did you enable your son? Why did you give your son or daughter money to to buy drugs or all that? And that's oftentimes what they'll say. Well, I love my son, I want her to be happy. And I knew, you know, this made it made her happy or him happy, and I feel mm-hmm. like that's kind of what's going on there. You know, you you know it's 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 destructive, but you also know it brings them joy. And if you love someone, you want to be the element that inspires that or kind of encourages that joy, and not be the the reason against that. And I feel like that's what was going on on mm-hmm. those two.
2: Yeah, and then I mean, also I think just the nature of addiction that like loving someone and wanting them to stop like doesn't actually like addiction is like so powerful. Right. I think it takes a lot. I mean, especially, I mean, you know, so just saying like, no, I'm not going to support you. I mean, might work. It might not. Right. I mean, the addiction could be more powerful than that, but yeah, no, that's interesting.
1: Very good. Yeah, absolutely. So Rebecca, what are you working on next? You've got this outstanding collection of short stories. You won the, you won the, the, the fiction slash nonfiction prize from Ohio state university press. So what's in the pipeline next? What are you working on next?
2: Yeah, I have a novel, um, that is my, well, I've got two novels. There's the one that I'm like in the revision stages on and like really hoping I just did a big sliced out two points of view. So, you know, uh, yeah, but it's it's a novel and it's actually a little bit thematically similar to the collection in terms of, um, looking at sort of legacies of generational violence or sexual violence within generations, um, and then my new project, which is the one I'm excited about and don't have any time to work on, um, it's about movies. It's a little bit, li- I mean, there's suicide, but there's movies, you know, it's so it's a little bit kind of lighter. Yeah, but um, yeah, the novel will hopefully, you know, hopefully something's going to happen with that guy, but
1: you never know in this crazy world. Yeah, that's true. Well, we'll certainly keep our fingers crossed for you and keep yeah. it keeps updated uh, as that progresses. So in our final moments with you today, Rebecca, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about your writing, to talk to you more about uh, the, the the teaching in prisons that you do, to find out more about your collection of short stories, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of Our Sister Who Will Not Die?
2: Yeah, uh, I have a website, um, rebeccaibernard.com. Which is like R E B C C A I Bernard B E R N A R D dot com. Um, and then I'm also on like Twitter. Um, but and then the book is available, I don't really I mean it's it's available like through Amazon, through Bookshop, through um all of those kinds of places and through the publisher as well. And I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but there was a code sister, so sister all in caps for 30% off and free shipping. But don't hold me to it if that's not still working. But that was—I haven't been told it's not working uh, from from the publisher's website. So that would be um, Ohio State University Press.
1: The title of the book is "Our Sister Who Will Not Die." It's a collection uh, of short stories uh, that that are edgy. They're unflinching, but. They're wonderfully compassionate stories that that really uh, put us into the the complexity of of messy lives, into the perspective and mindsets of people that uh, we might oftentimes dismiss. But in any case, there's a thread of hope and there is redemption in all of these stories. It is a wonderful collection, well worth uh, and well. Uh, deserving of the uh, Ohio State uh, University Press Prize, and uh, congratulations to you for that, Rebecca. We're so glad to have you. Rebecca Bernard has been our guest today. Mad Creek Books, an imprint of the Ohio State University Press, uh, is the publisher. You can find out more uh, about this book, about the press, and about other things that they have going on by going to ohiostatepress.org. Rebecca, congratulations on the collection. Uh, all the best to you. And when you get that novel done and out, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. Thanks. So much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of our program, Pam Stack, who does a lot of work behind the scenes to make all of these podcasts possible. We appreciate Pam's work and her support each and every episode here on the program. And we also want to remind you that this program is a copyrighted program and podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon,
0: I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.